WAGP.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to show yourself approved of God as workmen, not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a first-time listener for the next hour, we'll be taking questions that people have as they study God's word, as they're facing a challenge in their ministry or personal life that they'd like biblical counsel on. If we can help by God's grace, we will. All you need to do is pick up the phone again locally. It's 843-525-1859, 525-1859, area code 843. If you're listening through the internet and we have people who do that as we live stream this station around the world, you can also email us at TBL for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question, and we're happy to receive it that way as well. Well, Rick, as always, it's great to be here. Let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. All right, indeed, Pastor. Our first question comes from Jamie in Lillewap, Washington. Dr. Brogy, so many people refer to the washing of feet passage in John 13 as a teaching on humility and, more specifically, service to one another. In context, though, Jesus makes it clear that he's contrasting being clean with the need for washing only. And then he seems to define clean in terms of salvation, believing in Jesus is the only way to deal with sin, singular. Wouldn't it be more in context to continue the analogy with the washing to be the daily need to deal with sins, plural? More a teaching about our forgiveness in Christ and our right response in forgiving others. That you should also do as I did to you, as it says in John thirteen fifteen. To interject a simple service message here seems out of place with the rest of the passage. I'd love to hear your teaching on this popular passage. Thank you so much. Well, it's a great question. I've preached through the Gospel of John, and so I have a message specific to this. So if you go to searchthescriptures.org, click on John's Gospel. I'm not sure, maybe 40 or 50 messages I did out of the Gospel of John and find this text. And you can hear more detailed explanation. But you ask a good question. You know, is the focus of this passage uh, primarily service or is it primarily cleansing from sin? Uh, I don't think it's an either or. It's really a both and. Um, Because when you, number one, put the parallel text to it in Luke 22, they're having a discussion over who's the greatest in the kingdom of God. So that's the context as uh, when Jesus uh, gets up, he girds himself about, he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And so he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. So there's a certain truth that Peter was not going to get that night. And Jesus makes it clear. 
what you are going to see witnessed here, you'll understand later on. And of course, Peter does, and he uses some of the same slave terminology uh, in his first epistle. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Uh, and the word here for part is um, used elsewhere. It's the Greek word meros. It, it has the idea of you, you have no participation. You have no fellowship with me. And of course, Simon Peter responds, well, if that's the case, Lord, then not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he was bathed, needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. And again, remember, this was a common practice in the first century when you uh, would go from one location to another. There would be times when you would be walking through muddy roads that are wet and liquidy, and there would be times when your feet would be covered in dust. And so the common practice when you arrived at someone's home is either the host or a servant within the home uh, would go and they would wash your feet before you stepped on their floors. Common practice. Um, this is a special occasion. It's Passover. They're prepared for it. Um, and the Lord uses this analogy. It's like today when you um, maybe are going to someone's home for dinner. You might clean up, take a shower, get all ready. But when you get there, you don't need to have your feet washed. You've been bathed, but you don't need to have your feet washed. Well, not so in the first century. If you've been bathed, you've had a bath, there's no need to have another bath. The only thing you need to have is your feet cleaned. And the fact that he is using this, not just in terms of servanthood, but in terms of cleansing, spiritual salvation, and even salvation is clear because he says he who is bathed only needs to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, you are not all clean. So Jesus has said it already in John six sixty four. He'll say it again in John 17, that there was an unbeliever amongst them who had never really had salvation's bath. So once you're clean, once you've been bathed, once bathed, always bathed, no need for another salvation bath. But as you walk through this world, sometimes your feet get dirty and your feet need to be cleansed. And so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table, he said then to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. And indeed, those were appropriate titles to describe the Lord Jesus. And you're right for that's what I, that's who I am for. So am I, if I, then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. That's maybe not what you would expect him to say. You might expect him to say, if I then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, then you should have washed my feet. But that's not what he said. He said, you ought to wash one another's feet. You know, if Jesus Christ were coming to Community Bible Church this Sunday and we had an opportunity to serve him, the people would line up. Uh, the line would go out the door. Anything, any opportunity to serve the Lord Jesus. Um, but if um, we're dealing with people, especially sinful, sinful people, it's a little bit different, isn't it? Remember, they're in an argument, Luke 22 tells us, over who's the greatest in the kingdom of God. And they're very self-centered and self-focused. And Jesus is teaching a lesson on servanthood as well. 
servanthood that needs to be done with clean hearts because our feet get dirty. And so, again, this is not exclusionary on one side or the other. There is a lesson on servanthood that they will get that night. There is a lesson on forgiveness and cleansing they're going to understand fully after the cross uh, is behind them. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither is the one uh, who is sent greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. And so it's not just knowing the need to serve, it's doing service that brings the great blessing. And Jesus doesn't want us to just serve in any uh, way, shape, or form. He wants us to serve with clean feet, which means um, we apply a verse like 1 John 1, 9, which is a fellowship verse. The Bible makes a distinction between our union with God, what we might call from this text, our bath with God, in our fellowship with God from this text, keeping our feet clean. Our salvation's bath happens once. It's never to be repeated. Once we're saved, we are saved forever. However, our fellowship with God is a moment by moment thing. And that's the focus of first John. Uh, These things I've written to you that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship was with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. But for that fellowship to uh, happen, In practice, he says that you must walk in the light as he is in the light. We have to have clean feet. And so as Christians, we all stumble in many ways. And when we stumble, we need to specifically uh, come to our Heavenly Father and confess our sin. Um, If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and he is righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9 has many times been used by evangelists and even by Christians and even applied inappropriately by non-Christians as a salvation verse. And so sometimes you'll meet unbelievers. Why should God let you into heaven? Well, I believe God's forgiving. And if you just ask God to forgive you, he'll forgive you. Well, that's, that's not true. If that were true, the Lord Jesus could have come to earth and said, my father is such a forgiving father. If you are just really sorry and genuinely sorry, and you ask God for, for, for forgiveness, he'll do it. But that's not the way it works. Uh, Forgiveness is not based on our confession. It's based on the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. All right. Very good. And uh, by the way, it was 63 messages you gave on the book Mm. of John. More than I realized. And the one that uh, she was referencing, John uh, 13. And, what uh, message number is that? That is message number 36 called True Servant. Uh, all right. All you can right. find that on searchthescriptures.org where you've got a, a large variety of uh, features there. In addition, you can listen to archived messages uh, as well as archived episodes of the Bible line. So if you've uh, got a question but didn't get a chance to hear it live, just go to searchthescriptures.org or at wagp.net. Our next question comes from Corey in New Haven, Connecticut. Corey writes, I care deeply about my friend Frank and dragged him to church about a year ago to see him be baptized about a month later. And then immediately following, he stopped attending church altogether. He was very guilt laden at this time. Now that he's been baptized, he hasn't picked up his Bible, attended church, although he says he should, or fellowship with anyone. How can I approach my friend with this issue? Well, it's a good question, and sometimes, unfortunately, we are trying to get unbelievers to act like Christians. And so you have this friend, Frank, you dragged him to church, to use your terminology, and um, 
he got baptized, and uh, a short time later, a month later, he just stopped attending altogether. Well, there's probably a good possibility, a strong possibility, that he was never really converted. Uh, unfortunately, in many churches, when uh, people say, come down to the pastor on a Sunday morning and they say, well, I prayed the sinner's prayer today and I want to be baptized and a member of the church, the pastor shakes their hand and that's the end of it. And the next Sunday, if not that evening, they're scheduled for a baptism. When many times what you discover is that when people come down front to join the church and sometimes they'll say, well, I was saved before, but you know, I just, I want to be a Christian. When you probe a little bit and you ask some basic questions and you get past the Christian veneer and the terminology and the catchphrases that so many people in America know, you discover very often they, they're not saved, that they don't even know the gospel. So I had a couple just a, a week ago last Sunday, they came down front. They told me they were both Christians and I said, oh, wonderful. Well, we're going to have a meet the pastor meeting this evening. And for for you to complete the membership process, you would need to um, come to this meeting. We want to make sure everyone's on the same page and we want to offer some very practical help. So they came that evening, came in, filled out the survey, the questionnaire that we asked people to fill out. Um, he said he was 50 percent sure. She said she was 80 percent sure she'd go to heaven. And why should God let him into heaven? And they did not give the biblical answer. Now, it was clear to me that neither of them were Christians. Now, they told me they were both Christians when they came down front, that they wanted to be baptized because they had never been baptized before and wanted to join the church. Well, had I not spent a little bit of time, I would have found out that I would not have found out that they were really not saved. And I might have the next Sunday baptized them and soon discovered a, a short time later when the emotions of the moment had worn off. Maybe they were under the conviction of the Spirit of God, and, and that was it, and off they would go. Um, but when they came to the Meet the Pastor meeting, we discovered they were not Christians, and as they heard the plan of salvation that night, God's Spirit spoke to them. Uh, does a person have to believe and understand the gospel before they're saved? Of course. Uh, there are certain prerequisites to be counted as a true believer. You have to know, for instance, that good works cannot save you because you're a sinner and therefore your best human efforts, whatever righteousness you can accomplish on your own will always fall short of the glory of God. And you need to be willing to put your faith, your trust in the death, burial and resurrection of Christ alone, nothing else. So um, in order to accomplish that, uh, people need to hear the plan of salvation. They need to know how they can be saved. And as it turns out, that couple received Christ. And last Sunday, I baptized them. So my guess is, if I were a betting man, because I meet so many people who have been baptized by a pastor, and they're confused, and they say, well, my, my, my pastor baptized me, and you know, I, I thought I was a Christian. I said, yeah, but you said you were 50% sure. And why should God let you into heaven? I'm a good person. And I go to church and I've been baptized and I give money. And that kind of answer, because the mouth speaks what's in the heart, reflects that you were never really saved. And I, and I just gently remind them if they were saved way back yonder, when the pastor baptized them, then they would never give that kind of answer today. Um, because when you come into a real, true, genuine encounter with the Lord Jesus, it changes your life. 
So this is a person who probably believes about Christ, but does not really believe in Christ. And the Lord describes such people in Luke chapter 8, when he tells the parable of the sower. And people are on this soil for different reasons, sometimes a lack of information, uh, but sometimes just a lack of willingness to truly respond. It might be that your friend really knew and understood the gospel. And so he says, and those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they may not believe and be saved. That's the first category. That's kind of scary. The devil is given permission to take the word from the heart so that they may not believe and be saved. There is a time when people wear out the long suffering patience of God, where the final moment is expired for them to respond and to come to genuine faith. And those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear the word, receive the word with joy. They get all excited. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, they fall away. Ah, some would say, you see, they were saved, but they lost their salvation. No, no, no. They were never saved to begin with, because once saved, you're always saved. You cannot lose something that is eternal. It's called everlasting, eternal life. These are people who have intellectualized the gospel, and that's all they've done. There's a classic example in Acts chapter 8 of Simon such that he's even baptized. They, they, they go by what he says, and it appears that he's a believer, but he's really not. He's not a genuine believer. He's a person who only intellectualizes the gospel, and the apostles uh, end up finding that out, and they describe him as someone who's in the bondage of iniquity and, um, and has lost. And there's a lot of people like that in our churches today. So you're probably a little frustrated at this point because you want your friend Frank to do what he, you want him to do. But without a regenerated heart, it's probably not going to happen. Uh, look, uh, when First John ends, uh, when John the Apostle ends his epistle in First John, he says, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Uh, can you have eternal life and not know it? No. Uh, if you have eternal life, you can truly know it. But among other things, John is saying, look, if, if these things, what things? The things he's written about in his epistle. If these things are true of you, because these are marks of genuine conversion, then you can know that this is not just some intellectual faith that this is not just some external kind of faith, but it's a faith that has reached the heart for with the heart man believes unto righteousness. You can know that you have the real genuine item if these things are true of you. So for instance, one of the things that he mentioned is he says, by this we know we've passed out of life into death and that we love the brethren. A mark of genuine conversion is that you love God's people. And so your friend here came to church for a month and seemingly has no desire any longer to be with the people of God. Well, then he doesn't meet one of these things that John describes. Uh, By this, we know we've passed out of death into life. We love the brethren. And so he highlights five aspects of genuine conversion in that little epistle. So all I would say is um, I think you need to go back to square one with your friend 
and to say, well, you know, Frank, maybe you just have never really received Christ. And sometimes people want someone to believe so bad and their motivations are different for different people. It might be that he's your boyfriend and you want him to believe so bad because you know that you're not supposed to marry an unbeliever. And so you got him to church and you got him baptized and, and you're afraid, you know, well, you know, he's a believer now and I, I don't want to marry an unbeliever. And, and so people end up marrying these people who don't really show the marks of conversion. And then later on, they, they're so disappointed and, and many people play up to this. There are many a man who has feigned conversion because he liked a girl and she liked him and she let her emotions say, get in front of her biblical theology. And as soon as they were married and the, um, the wedding was over, uh, you know, within a month or two, they're, they're no longer interested in God or the Bible or attending church. And that's the end of it. It's what I call marriage altar conversion. And this is why it's really important for young people who are getting married to make sure you, if you're a Christian, guard your heart, guard your emotions, let people who love you, who know you best help direct you into that decision and make sure that the person that you are want to marry really has the genuine item that they're not a, a fake believer, so to speak. All right. Good question. I appreciate it. And uh, let's go on to the next one. Five two five one eight five nine toll free eight seven seven nine two four seven nine eight zero or email us at tbl at wagp dot net and uh, this person Jermaine from Fayetteville North Carolina did just that they'd like to know what the Bible says about chewing snuff and smoking all right um, there's not a verse in the Bible where it tells us you know not to uh, chew tobacco or to use snuff, or to smoke cigarettes. Um, God doesn't list every single sin in the Bible, but he does give us principles that help us to understand uh, how we should live our lives. And so clearly there are verses like in 1 Corinthians 3 and in 1 Corinthians 6, where our body is described as a temple of the Holy Spirit, that we're not to do anything destructive to the temple of the Holy Spirit. What I find interesting is when Spurgeon was the great preacher that he was, he would smoke cigars and um, he said he did it in moderation. And a lot of uh, Christians today like to use Spurgeon as an example, why they can smoke a pipe or a cigar or whatever in moderation. And many of the pastors of his day said, you know, Charles Haddon, that's not a good thing. And wisdom would dictate otherwise. They didn't have the medical knowledge that we have in our day, uh, but they just knew it wasn't healthy. And, you know, sometimes you don't always have the specific reasons. You can't even always point to the verse, but there's a doubt in the back of your mind and in your heart and a twinge of uh, guilt when you engage in something. And that's the spirit of God speaking to you. The scripture says, whatever cannot be done in faith is sin. And so even then they knew that it was unwise and encouraged him to stop and that he was presenting a poor example to youth and others. Um, Listen, we know today medically that smoking is very foolish. Um, Why the Moody Bible Institute said we can use tobacco in moderation was just stupid. I mean, just foolish. The goal is not to see how close you can get to sin. Why they said it's okay to gamble was stupid. 
why they said it's okay to use alcohol in moderation was just stupid. Um, it's not how close can I get to sin. You know, when are you drunk? Oh, well, you know, we know it's a sin. Well, when are you drunk? Now, when, when do you cross that line? Do you want to see how close you can get to that line um, without sinning? Uh, and I know very, very few Christians who, quote unquote, drink, who at one time or another haven't been silly and you can tell they've had too much. Uh, maybe they're not rip roaring drunk, falling on the ground, slurring their words, but they're doing something that that's wrong, that's evil. And as Christians, we need to be above reproach. And so smoking, chewing, snuffing, whatever, it's just not a good thing. It's not healthy for your body. Medicine proves that people who chew get mouth cancer and and they get hooked on nicotine. And, you know, God says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and you are to honor it. And what you will find is, you know, you're not to be mastered by anything. First Corinthians chapter six. And so some things may even be profitable and okay, but you're not to be mastered by anything. I remember meeting with a young man. And I was uh, on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, and we had had a Christmas conference, and always a few days after Christmas, we'd bring together hundreds, sometimes thousands of students from a given region or state, and we would bring in a special speaker. And And he was in my small group, and I had six students that week, and and he was just telling me about how miserable his life was and how unhappy he was and he was saved. And I really knew, b- believed he was saved. But, and I said, well, you know, what's that big, dirty thing in your mouth? And I knew what it was, but I just wanted him to tell me. He said, well, that's tobacco. I know I probably shouldn't chew it. And I said, well, you know why you're probably miserable? Because you know that what you're doing is dishonoring to the Lord. How big does a sin have to be to break fellowship with the Holy God? Not big at all. You know, it doesn't take adultery or rip-roaring drunkenness to break fellowship with God. Any sin breaks fellowship with the Lord. And that's why God tells us as Christians that we're to confess our sins. The word confess is the Greek word homo-legeo. Homo, we get our word homo from it. Homo sapien, homosexual, it means the same. Legeo, most of us have heard the Anglican anglicized uh, form of the word legeo, lagos, the word. It literally means to say the same thing or to say the same word. And that's what real confession is. It's saying what God says about sin that, you know, Heavenly Father, my chewing tobacco, my using snuff, my smoking a cigarette is nothing short of sin. And I need to ask you to forgive me and to cleanse me. And um, true confession has an attitude of repentance within it. If your attitude is, Lord, I want you to forgive me, but I have absolutely no desire to see you change this and give me victory over it, then you really haven't confessed your sin. You're not saying what God says about it. And so it doesn't take much to break fellowship with the living God. And that's why our feet, going back to the first question today, need to be clean as we walk through this world. Sometimes they get dirty. And when they get dirty, we need to deal specifically with that dirt. And on the basis of Christ's death on the cross, receive that forgiveness and that cleansing that he might change our lives. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. And we had a listener call on a minute ago wanting to know the phone number for search the scriptures so they could get that information about the john they don't apparently have internet access so that phone number is toll free 877 
877-787-7478. That's 877-787-7478. And let me just say, you know, a lot of people don't realize it, um, but we do have a phone app if you have an Android or an Apple phone, maybe not a computer, but you have a smartphone if you go to the App Store and we're searchthescriptures.org. I tell people uh, to look for Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy because okay. yeah, there's now other, there's yeah. other Search the Scriptures apps out right. there. Right, and that will, um, that will bring you all the messages that you will find on your computer. And I meet people all the time who say, I don't even listen through my computer. I listen you know, through my smartphone or I'm driving down the highway. Some people can plug it into their sound system in their car. Some use earbuds. Some are out cutting the grass. And uh, there are just so many uh, applications with the smartphone. Uh, but you can call that toll-free number again. It's 877-STS um, for Search the Scripture 7478. Uh, you may at times get a message. We're all volunteer-run, but they will call you back if you leave a return phone number. So let's go to the next question. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor. Hey, good morning. Um, what I have is not a, is not a question. It's, it's just a comment. And what I want to say is I want to thank you and your, your pastoral staff for your teaching and all that you've done for your congregation, the Community Bible Church. Um, it, was, it was through you that you led my wife and I to Christ. It was through your teachings that we were able to lead our son, our daughter, and her family, and another family friend to Christ. Oh, praise the and Lord. It's through, through Pastor Matt that we're able to sing in the choir and worship and praise God in, in a way that I've never experienced before. And I've, at 62 years old, I've never been to a church like Community Bible Church where we have teaching such as yours, expository teaching. It, you teach the Word of God like no one I've ever heard, and I just I, I don't know how to thank you enough, and I'm sure our congregation doesn't know how to thank you enough. And I don't, I don't think that you've been told that often enough, but I just wanted to thank you. Well, thank you for your encouragement, brother. I, I appreciate that. It's always encouraging to me. The, the greatest way you can thank me is just to keep praying for me, because the strength that God gives me uh, comes from the prayers of his people. Uh, it's, it's hard work being a pastor, especially in this day. It's uh, hard work to prepare a message every week. Uh, I, I spend a minimum of 20 to 25 hours every week preparing uh, to speak for one hour. Um, it's a tremendous amount of work. It's a great responsibility, but it is also a great privilege because God uses his word to, to change lives. And, um, but thanks for the encouraging words, and we appreciate your prayers and trust you'll continue to do that. Let's go to the next question, Rick. And uh, All right. Uh, Igor from uh, Richmond Hill writes, I recently got married. I'm 20 years old. I recently got married to my beautiful wife, Laura, who loves God just as I do, although I've been off the path recently. I met a friend in college, a fellow brother in Christ by the name of Skibo. I never got the chance to know his real name or last name. I do know they have a big family who is homeschooled, and they recently joined your church. I've been told CBC is a great church, and the pastor is great. I've listened to more than 10 of your podcasts, uh, preachings over the year, and I've been wanting to join your church very badly. The problem is I attend sometimes to uh, my wife's church, and it is a Pentecostal church. I have no hate toward Pentecostals. I admire their passion, but I do not know, I do not want that type of environment, and I do not agree with some of their teachings. I have no idea 
what my question is to you. I'm sorry for the long sentences you've just read, but I really want to pursue Jesus in my marriage. Should I join your church? Well, let me just say, I, I think there's some other fundamental issues that need to be addressed as it goes back to your marriage. Because it sounds like um, maybe when you guys got married, you didn't have some really sound biblical counseling in terms of the roles that you play in marriage. Uh, It's really not you that should be following your wife to church. Uh, She should be following you. And for a couple to, you know, worship in two different churches is not wise and really not biblical. Uh, When you got married, uh, God gave you a helpmate. She will be a tremendous blessing to you if you listen to her. She has a lot of wisdom and insight that you don't have. That's why she's your helper. Uh, God uses her to come alongside and to uh, minister together in this partnership of marriage. Nonetheless, uh, you can't have two heads in a marriage. If you have two heads, you have a monster. If you have no head, there's it's dead. There's no direction. It's like a chicken with its head caught off running all over the place. Uh, So there needs to be an establishment of roles in the marriage. And God calls the man to lead. That doesn't mean he's a dictator. He's a loving leader. And he listens to his wife. But in the end, the decision is with him. And so if you're uncomfortable in that Pentecostal church and you sense, oh, there's some confusion here and... Um, there's, uh, I'm not growing spiritually. Well, look, if the head is not healthy, he certain, certainly cannot lead the rest of the body. And in this case, his wife and God's made the two of you one. So she needs to have an understanding that, um, honey, this is what I think, but I understand that the final decision rests with you. And if you're not in a church where you're growing, You need to be in one, and if not Community Bible Church, another Bible-believing church where the pastor opens the Scripture and teaches the Word of God. Unfortunately, and I don't want to broad-brush all of my Pentecostal brothers and sisters, but very often in Pentecostal churches, not only is there some confusing doctrine, and that they, for instance, teach that our salvation is not secure, you can lose eternal life, They often have some confusing doctrines on how the Holy Spirit manifests his filling in our life. Uh, They often confuse the baptism of the Spirit with the filling of the Spirit. And they often, not always, make a prerequisite for the baptism of the Spirit, as they would call it, maybe what we would call the filling of the Spirit, speaking in tongues. So there's just a lot of confusion. And since those are some of their distinctive doctrines that make Pentecostals Pentecostals, very often the services rotate around those things. They rotate around experience where that's not what you really see in the New Testament church. And if you don't believe me, study the pastoral epistles. And if you want to work through them verse by verse, pastoral epistles, as they're often called, or first and second Timothy and Titus, I've preached through every single word of them. And those are also online. What you find is that in the early church, central to their worship is the proclamation of God's word, the teaching and the exposition of scripture. And if that's missing, a church won't have the direction that it needs. Emotionalism will be put over the authority of the Bible. Experience will supersede what God has plainly said in the word of God. And you'll typically live a roller coaster, inconsistent kind of life. 
And that's not good. That's not healthy. You've, you've got a slice of time to make a difference here on earth. And before you know it, you're in your 20s now. Before you know it, should Jesus tarry, you'll be at the end of your life and you'll be in your 70s. And you'll say, what happened to the last 50 years? And I meet Christians who waste decades, decades in bad churches. Now, there are many good churches. We're not the only one. But you need to be in a good one. And your wife needs to respect your spiritual leadership. And if she doesn't, then that's a whole nother issue. And it may come too because not because she's rebellious per se. She's just untaught. And she doesn't really understand what the roles are within the marriage. And of course, good biblical counseling addresses those on the front end ever before you make that covenant. Uh, But very often today, it's like anything else. People, I want to get married. Okay, let's set a date. See you there. And uh, there's very little preparation that takes place before the actual marriage uh, unfolds. So, look, if you need a good church, come on. We'd love to have you. And, And since you're a relatively new Christian, what I would suggest to you would be for both you and your wife to go through the discovery class. And it's a 45-week course. It's structured so you don't have to wait for week one to come around. You could walk in this week at week 25, go weeks 25 to 45, and one to 24, and you get the whole thing. But it will give you a foundation, the kind of foundation that you need to have a good marriage. I'm counseling several couples right now. More and more people come to Community Bible Church into any church because there's a crisis in their home. Why'd you come? Well, you know, my wife and I, our marriage is on the rocks and we knew, you know, God's the answer. And so we decided to come here. Well, sometimes we lead them to Christ, but sometimes they're believers and we'll encourage them. You need to go to the discovery class. If, If myself or one of the pastors are going to do marriage counseling with you, you have to go to the discovery class and occasionally someone will buck and they'll say, well, that's for new Christians. And I'll tell them, look, if you understood the principles in the discovery class, you wouldn't be in my office today. You wouldn't be in this marital crisis that you're in um, because you would be understanding the biblical principles on how to maintain fellowship with God. Going back to the question of the day, clean feet. You would be understanding how the helper, God, the Holy Spirit, who lives in you, that's called the baptism of the spirit that takes place, not subsequent to salvation, as our Pentecostal friends teach, but at the moment of salvation, you would understand that the Holy Spirit who lives in you, who has baptized you also wants to fill you. And you will understand the principles on how his filling ministry unfolds in your life. So a good question. I appreciate it. Let's go to the next one. I was, gonna, I, was, I was going to add that um, uh, possible uh, might be a good idea if uh, he and his wife considered coming to one of your meet the pastor meetings and then Great uh, idea. You know, get an opportunity to get to know you in a less formal setting. Do we put those online? Um, the put, dates? Yeah, the yeah, dates. No, but we ought to. We should. Yeah. So um, uh, this, the, the next one is actually Thursday night at 7.15. The next one after that will be this coming Sunday at 5.30. Um, and so those are two immediate ones that are coming up. The meeting lasts about an hour. Uh, people come in, they fill out a little survey. It tells me a lot about them and where they are in their spiritual journey with the Lord. They also write down whatever questions they want to ask about Christianity, what it means to be saved. Uh, they may be saved. What does our church believe? We share our core doctrines 
And if someone's not a Christian, I promise you they will know how to become one before they leave. And if they are, they'll have other questions that are answered. So the next one is Thursday night at uh, 7.15 or Sunday night at 5.30. And we do have child care provided for both those meetings. Good Uh, question. Let's go to the next one. uh, This past Sunday, you were preaching on worrying. And this listener writes, in Scripture, it says that Christians should not worry and that further worrying is a sin. We know memorizing the Scriptures helps because we can take comfort with them, uh, from them rather. But how do we manage the human condition that responds first by worrying about circumstances? Well, a lot of, again, goes back to taking Jesus's advice uh, to renew your minds. And so he asked us to stop, look, think just about some basic things that we watch each and every day. Look at the birds of the air. You know, they don't refrigerate their worms. They don't store them in silos, but they uh, know that God is going to provide. They don't know where their next worm is coming from. But they believe somehow God will provide. Look at the grass, the common grass of the field. Look at the lilies of the field. Even the intricacy of a lily is better dressed than the richest of all Israel's kings, Solomon. Well, if God can take care of the lilies, if God can take care of the common grass, if God can take care of the birds, he'll say later in Matthew's gospel in the 10th chapter, that a sparrow can't even fall to the ground apart from God's notice. Uh, God attends the the funeral of every bird, so to speak. Then he'll say the hairs of your head are numbered. God understands everything. He understands things that you don't understand about yourself. No one listening to me knows how many hairs are on their head, but God knows that. He understands things about you that you don't understand. And so he's intimately acquainted, as King David will say in Psalm 139, with all of your ways, even before there's a word on your tongue, he knows what you are about to speak. And so sometimes we need to stop and pause and just really meditate on that truth and let that truth get deep into our heart where we are rewriting the tapes that we've grown up with. And that's part of growing in Christ. That's why the Bible tells us to meditate on Scripture. It might be that a good thing for this individual who's called to do would be to actually memorize that portion of Scripture that I preached on last Sunday and to think your way through it. Um, It's not just Scripture memory that God blesses, but it's Scripture meditation that he promises to bless. Uh, Kids sometimes will come to our Awana club and it starts up shortly and we have, you know, about 300 children who come on Sunday nights to the Awana Bible Club and occasionally they need a listener and I'll go in and I'll listen to the kids. And I remember one child a couple of years ago, I said, what'd you memorize? And she was about five years old. John 3:16. for God so loved the world, he gave his only forgotten son. That's how she said it to me. Well, she obviously memorized the verse, but she didn't know what the verse meant. Kids come into the office, they're eight or nine years old. I said, do you know Romans 6.23? And often the children in Awana do. For, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. I said, great. Now, what's a wage? And very often they'll just go, I, I don't know. So what have they done? They've memorized the verse, but they haven't really meditated on the verse. And the great thing about the Awana ministry is there's helps in there for the parents to help their kids, not just to memorize, 
but to meditate, to understand what the verse is saying and how it applies to the life. And so out in the margin, it will give a definition of a wage, what eternal life is and so forth. Uh, And I tell parents, look, it's better for your child to memorize two verses that they understand than 10 that they've really not connected with their heart. And so what you want to do to rewrite the tapes of worry, if you're a worry wart, is one, to deal with it, of course, honestly, sin is sin. You've got to call sin for what it is. And if you call, well, I'm not really worried, I'm just concerned, when you know you're worried, (laughs) call it what it is. Um, If you don't admit to it, you can't uh, unleash the Spirit of God in your heart to change yourself. And two, again, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to grow us, just as He uses the Word of God to save us. You're saved or born again by the Spirit. On the other hand, the Bible says you're born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed through the living and abiding Word of God. Which is it? It's not an either or, it's a both and. So it is not simply in our justification, but also in our sanctification. The Spirit of God grows us. He he, he changes us. How does he do it? Using the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And so if my Word abides in you, if you abide in me, and my word abides in you, then you can ask whatever you wish. See, that's a conditional promise, and it will be done for you. That's conditional. So sometimes, oh, yeah, I'm obeying, Lord. My heart's clean, but neither is his word abiding in your life. So there's a dual edge to that promise. I have to be clean where the Spirit can live and fill me, um, but I also have to allow his word to abide in me. And that takes time where you memorize and you meditate on Scripture. Good question. Let's go to the next one. As you were talking about having to have your mind renewed through the whole process, it occurred to me uh, that um, is there some component about giving up worrying where we have to purpose to do that? And what made me think of that is the preceding Scripture that says, you know, uh, make your body a living sacrifice. You know, you have to purpose to get on that altar and say, I'm not going to worry. Well, that's right. And so, um, again, on that sermon that I did there from Matthew chapter 6, I I walked through very specifically some prerequisites that were absolutely necessary if indeed we're going to experience uh, freedom from worry because verse 25 begins with the words, for this reason I say to you, In other words, um, based on what I've just said now, here's the application. And so he's made it very, very clear that we have to have a clear eye uh, to use the metaphor from uh, Romans 12 that you just referenced, Rick. We've put ourselves on the altar, so to speak. My eye is clear. So if my eye is not clear, my body won't be full of light. It will be full of darkness. So there's a single... Um, kind of objective in the life to serve the living God. Um, There's a desire to live for the things that matter to the Lord. We're not simply living for the here and now to lay up treasures upon earth that moth and rust destroys and where thieves can break in and steal. But we have a commitment to lay up eternal treasure. If we haven't dealt with those in verses 19 through 24, then when we come to verse 25, for this reason, I say to you, don't be anxious. And then he'll conclude it and he'll kind of go back to what he said in verses 19 to 24, where he will say, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. You know why some Christians are so filled with anxiety and worry 
It's because their priorities are out of whack. They're not really concerned about God's kingdom in his righteousness. They're concerned about their kingdom, their job, their, their finances, their this, their that, but not really God's concerns. And they're so filled with self that they're not involved in the great commission of Christ. But what you discover is that when Christians start understanding, you know, the, the Lord has actually called me to be an ambassador. I'm his representative in a unique sphere. And he's called me to touch people's lives, Christian and unbeliever alike in that sphere. And I start putting first things first to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. What, what those people tend to learn is that our heavenly father has a way of taking care of all this other stuff that concern us. And, and the worry begins to dissolve more and more out of the human heart. So um, the sermon probably might, if this person has really struggled with this, go back, listen to the sermon where you could give the sermon to me. Then you've got it. Where you, where you could walk through each verse in terms of its meaning, its context, then you've got it. Then that sermon is going to reverberate in your soul, rewrite the tapes of your mind, and you're, as you apply what you now understand, you've got to understand it first, then God's going to begin to change your life. All right, very good. Our next caller has a two-part question. First of all, they, they have a situation where their pastor is aware of a man and a woman in their congregation that are living together as a married couple, and they have children, but they're not married. Uh, the man serves in the church, and this caller wonders if that's scriptural. And secondly, what about if someone has not been baptized? Should they serve? Well, uh, let me deal with the first question, which is a little more fundamental in terms of uh, a person's involvement in the local assembly. If you have two people who are living together as unmarried, and they even have children together, um, then you have two people who are living in adultery. And to have two people who are living in adultery serve as members in good standing in your church is to mock the Christian faith. It's a sham. That's the kind of thing that the world throws up over. They say, well, you Christians say this, but here's how you live. And it's that kind of hypocrisy that turns people off unbelievers. And it destroys our testimony. If the salt in you has become saltless, tasteless, with what then can it be savored again? And, and if the light has become darkness, you know, we destroy the, 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 the testimony of the one for whom we are supposed to represent. And so when you think of service in the local assembly, it's a privilege, but it should be done by people who are in fellowship with God. This person is not a candidate for service in your church. This person is a candidate for church discipline. If your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he doesn't listen, take two or three. If he doesn't listen, take it to the church. If these people are members of your church, then they should be under church discipline. The second question is a little bit different. What if someone has not been baptized? Should they serve? Well, I suppose it comes back to your understanding of baptism. I have Presbyterian friends who uh, baptize infants, and uh, there are people uh, who have had infant baptisms, but not believers baptism and they're in fellowship with God and they're a part of that local assembly. And I would say, sure, they can serve. Um, I personally uh, don't think there's any such thing 
as infant baptism that you can really find in scripture. In fact, there's a word for sprinkling in the Bible, which is typically what is done to an infant. It's the Greek word ratizo. Uh, There is a word for baptize in the Bible, baptizo. It means literally to immerse. In the first century, if you had a piece of white cloth and you wanted to turn it red, you would baptize it, you would immerse it into red dye. And that is the picture that God gives us for New Testament baptism. We just transliterate the word uh, baptizo into baptism in our English language. But in some translations of the Bible and other parts of the world, they don't translate it baptism. They translate it immersion. And that's really the meaning of the word And either really, I suppose are correct. So when a person is saved, they are called after their conversion to be baptized as an emblem of salvation. And if that's a stipulation for membership in your church, and it is in most evangelical churches in the world, missiologists would say that less than 10% of evangelical Christians worldwide practice infant baptism. And I think there's a reason for that because it's not, it doesn't come from the simple plain reading of scripture you've got to be educated into that position. You hand the average new Christian in the world a Bible and they won't come up with infant baptism. They'll at least know that baptism is done after conversion. And when they read passages like Acts 8, they went down into the water and then he baptized them. They'll infer, well, there must be more to them this than just throwing a handful of water on the person. If they had to first go down into the water and then he baptized them. So even without any understanding of Greek and just reading the plain text in their own language, they don't come up with infant baptism. So do you let people who are not members, let's say for the sake of argument, and I don't know the genesis of this question, but if for the sake of argument, baptism is a requirement to membership. And in my view, there are only two requirements for membership in the New Testament. One is conversion, that you've been born again. And that presupposes you know what the gospel is, and that's where you start with a person. And number two is that they've been baptized since their conversion. If those are prerequisites for membership in your church, then you're asking another question. Do you let unbelievers serve in your church or people who are not members, though they may be Christians, serve in your church? And I would say, no, you shouldn't. Why? Because membership is a New Testament concept that is taught in the Bible as an act of obedience. And so if a Christian refuses to join a Bible-believing local church, then either A, they're in ignorance, and the ignorance needs to be dispelled as a primary uh, focus over getting them to serve, or B, they are in disobedience. And if someone's in disobedience and refuses to join a Bible-believing New Testament church, why would I want a disobedient Christian to serve? I wouldn't. So um, it's a good question. Anyway, our time has elapsed and um, we hope to be back on the next Tuesday. If the Lord will allow us, I hope you can join us then. And if you have questions, you can email them during the week. And when I come into the studio next week, uh, they'll be waiting here for us. And we'll try to address those. And the email address is TBL, the Bible line at WAGP.net. I hope you have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ.